Hey everyone, this is Patrick with the 307 RPG Podcast, and I just want to take a moment and say thank you to all of our amazing patrons. It's because of you that we're able to do the things that we do. If you like our show and you want to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash theforgeherald. Thanks everyone, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 307 RPG Podcast. My name is Patrick. I'm Nolan. Nolan, how's it going? I feel like, gosh, I haven't seen you in what? Oh, 12 hours. The joys of working together and uh, spending seven days a week together at the same time. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Since the last time I saw you, yes, things are still fine. So we're good. Well, that's good. I'm glad nothing's changed. (laughs) Nolan, we have a special show today. Yes, we do. Joining us today are Josh Heath and Travis Legg. Now, you guys should know these names. They're both prolific writers uh, in the Storyteller's Vault as well as through Stuff with Onyx Path. Uh, they've both been on our show. Josh is the one of the hosts of Werewolf the Podcast. Travis is a line developer for Scarred Lands for Onyx Path. And today, we are going to be dedicating this show to one of our favorite campaign settings for Dungeons and Dragons, and that is Scardlands. Most specifically, we've invited these guys to join our sh- join us on our show to talk about the new uh, mega campaign that's coming to Kickstarter tomorrow, um, uh, November 23rd, called Dead Man's Rust. Travis, Josh, how are you fellas doing today? Wonderful. It's a beautiful day, and uh, thank you for giving us a chance to come and Talk about Scarred Lands. Josh, how yep, are you? I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm very <laughs> excited to be talking about Scarred Lands. Yes, yes. The heavy metal of D&D settings, that's for sure. 100%. Absolutely. And uh, I do believe that uh, when the Kickstarter launches, that uh, the people will see that that, is, that promise is being delivered on 120%. Well, if the cover art it holds true, this is what the actual cover art is going to look like. I don't see how anybody would have any doubt. Yeah, that cover is amazing. Uh, Aaron Riley, who did the cover for the Skylines Players Guide, actually, uh, did that one as well. And the cover that's circulating right now um, is just the print cover front view mock-up. Um, so there's a wraparound on that that I think people will really dig. Um, not only fans of Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal, but also of classical artwork. Yeah, it it looks amazing. Yeah, yeah Aaron did an amazing job on it. Um, yeah, and that's uh, that is a snapshot of one of the many uh, horrible situations that the players can find themselves in uh, throughout the course of Dead Man's Rust. Perfect. <laughs> okay, so before we go too deep into Dead Man's Rust, because we are going to do that, let's start with Josh. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You've been on the show before where we were talking about werewolf or rage across werewolf. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself in case somebody new is listening. Yeah, so uh, my name is Josh Heath, obviously. I am the host of uh, Werewolf the Podcast, which is a retrospective podcast examining werewolf uh, the apocalypse. Um, I'm also a um, co-owner of the company called High Level Games. We produce a lot of different products and help uh, small creators get their products onto community content and out there in general. So you may know us from such projects as uh, the 100 Kinfolk series on the Storytellers Vault, or you might be familiar with our Snowhaven Snowpunk setting. So um, I'm a big RPG geek, um, have been for... Um, 30 years or so at this stage and uh, the things that I'm mostly driven by are horror RPGs so even when I run a fantasy game I always have some sort of horror elements so the Scarred Lands is a good setting for a mix of both of those things. Yes, absolutely. If you haven't listened to Werewolf the Podcast, I can't recommend it enough. Josh and Carrie do a fantastic job. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy the show. It's not as busy as I am. I don't always get to listen to podcasts as much as I like, but it is one of the few that stays in my rotation. So I highly recommend it. Travis, I think at this point we can just say you're a frequent guest on our show because I think this is the third or fourth time you've been here. So it is about yourself. It's comfortable. I I know where I can sit comfortably. I can, I know where I can can and can't put my feet up. I like it here. Um, so about me, uh, I am a freelance writer and game developer. I uh, got into playing D and D when I was you know like five with my older brother. So 
the role-playing game uh, business at one side or the other has been with me uh, for as long as my, my memory has. Um, so it's really a treat to be able to uh, serve as the line developer on my favorite Dungeons & Dragons uh, setting. Um, yeah, um, I developed Scarredlands. I've been, I've been in, in this uh, gig now for about two years, uh, and I'm just over the moon excited to be able to bring the first official campaign book under my watch to people on, on, uh, in Dead Man's Rest. So yeah, that's that's pretty much me in a nutshell. That's my whole existence right now is encompassed by this project. <laughs> Yes, you're you're frequently posting how many words you have to get in in a day. Oh yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's funny. I had this. Things were very different even just a few weeks ago because you know the world was a little bit more uncertain then than it is today, and so we didn't know if we were even going to launch this um, Kickstarter this year. Uh, so I foolishly um, accepted some work that. I was like, oh, I'll get that done. And even if we kick off the Kickstarter, it won't be too bad, yada, yada, yada. Well, then, you know, the election went the way the election went. The world didn't catch on fire. And so uh, Rich was like, well, let's pull the trigger on this Kickstarter. And I'm like, oh, crap, I have a 20,000-word assignment for that came from. I need to get done. Oops. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm writing about, uh, you know, uh, hor horrific monsters from the sea in between uh, all the other pre-Kickstarter juggle. It's fun. So mine and Nolan's introduction to Scarredlands, aside from just looking at the player's guide and reading about it in the Monday morning meeting notes or the Monday meeting notes, um, it was most definitely Vengeance of the Shunned. Nolan, why don't you tell us just a little bit about what you experienced as a player through that first mega campaign that we played in Scarredlands? Yeah, we, uh, no, it's it's a tough one to say. Uh, at that point in time when we picked it up, I was I am kind of over Forgotten Realms. I think I've been there long enough. I feel like I can't mess with the world because it's kind of set in stone. And if you get out of line, somebody big and powerful shows up that you know you can't touch or harm or accidentally kill. Um, and so jumping into Scarred Lands, not knowing a lot about it, was fun to see this messed up kind of almost Wild West style world where people are still like trying to figure out how to survive after everything had happened and anytime you try to move forward a little bit you're reminded that the world is still trying to eat you so it was it, it was a lot of fun i'm a huge fan of longer campaigns uh it was neat to be a part of kind of an overarching story that had so many people come together and write uh and you could feel that nothing was ever going to be just kind of stagnant or the same or if you didn't love one part of a story or it wasn't your style there was a new one coming uh where we've played you know major book campaigns where like i think two two or three episodes or campaigns into it uh, sessions it's like yeah this isn't for us and that's kind of disappointing uh here it was kind of, one of those things of you took each one and sometimes it was a puzzle sometimes it was a monster sometimes it was scary sometimes it was funny and it, it really felt like uh, you you really didn't know what to expect. There was no way to guess or assume what was coming because it didn't follow any tropes. It didn't follow any you know expectations of how it was going to go or end. Um, I I enjoyed a lot. I really liked the world just because, like I said, at any given moment the world's going to eat you. It's very wild. Uh, people are trying to survive, and it's 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 a scary thing when you don't know who or what to trust. Whether it's a the bush on the side of the road or the bandit in front of you or the rust on the ground that's going to eat everything that's on you the pretty plants that put you to sleep or <laughs> <laughs> there's so many so many wonderful things and that's i just got to stop and say that that's so amazing to hear and uh on behalf of everyone who worked on uh vengeance thank you um it was such a rewarding project to be a part of um and I'm really glad to hear uh, how it's doing at the table. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, I'm always glad to see that it's selling and whatnot. But uh, the real place where the where the rubber meets the meets the road for me is uh, is when you get feedback from somebody about like, oh, we played, we used this thing at the table, and it worked out really well. We had fun with this aspect of that story or whatever. That's really 
kind of what fuels my fire once I'm sure the lights are going to stay on. What was that one, Nolan? Uh, I think it was the Temple of Madrio where the uh, cow ap- appeared in the sky and fell on the wizard. Yeah, it was the, the cursed random magic item and the guy was escaping and my character was a paladin slash kind of ranger type and purely took it as a sign of the god that he was doing the right path. I mean, it was it was totally a divine yeah. moment that awakened his uh, uh, quest for doing. <laughs> doing yeah, I forget, it was like it was a wild magic surge and a cow just appeared out of the air and just <laughs> flattened the uh, the bad guy. It was <laughs> so funny. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah, beautiful. It was it was it was awesome. Okay, so Vengeance of the Shun was was indeed our introduction into Scarred Lands. Now we have jumped into the Spiragos campaigns. We've played those. We've had a lot of fun playing that. In fact, I think we actually did some actual play podcasts on the Spiragos campaigns, um, as well as streaming some of Vengeance of the Shun uh, with Onyx Path. But today we want to talk about this new mega campaign, Dead Man's Rust. So Travis, why don't you give us a quick introduction of what is Dead Man's Rust? Uh, sure. So Dead Man's Rest is a complete campaign book taking you from levels 1 to 10. Um, it's set in sort of central Gelspad. Largely, the, the lion's share of the uh, action is set in the Hornsaw Forest. But you really get an overview of that area. <clears throat> if you go with the um, suggested starting point for level 1 characters... Uh, the campaign opens in the city of Leone, uh, which is the capital of the Manticora Confederacy, during a holiday known as the Night of Chronicles, um, where at the at the season change, Leone puts up this huge festival and they invite bards from across Galspad to come and uh, basically do like competitive storytelling. And there's kind of everything else that you would expect at a festival, you know, foods and vendors and all that sort of thing. And so this serves as a nice opening point because you get to go in and sort of see one of these thriving civilizations that like you were talking about before uh has to beat back you know the darkness and and establish itself and you can see that happening and the joy that that brings and and the problems that that brings and all of all of that in sort of this microcosm as you're going through this first adventure and then while you're there the the party comes across uh, this aging dwarven bard named Dredoki Bronzeleaf, and uh, he's originally from the Broadreach Forest before it was the Hornsaw. Uh, he was a veteran of the Divine War, and he had left long before Mormo's destruction. So he's never been to the Hornsaw Forest, but he's getting old, and he's heard that the that the Broadreach Horizon has opened up this area, this band of sort of redeemed or cleaned forests that the Broadreach Elves brought about. And so uh, he is looking for a, a young band of adventurers to escort him home. And that's that's the humble beginnings if you start at first level. It goes from there into this sort of sprawling adventure where... Uh, the characters get introduced to several locations throughout Central Galspad. Uh, they have opportunities to make allies and enemies within the Broadreach Horizon, and they discover uh, that there's something exceptionally dark going on uh, with the disappearance of some Hollow Legionnaires that are operating in the area. And this sort of sprawls outward into the revelation that there there may be a new plague upon Gelsbad, um, specifically targeting the Hollow Legionnaires, that could, if the players don't intervene, um, spell doom for an entire species and drastically change the face of, of Gelsbad. Um, and that, so in terms of ground that's covered, you've got Leone, you've got the Broadreach Horizon Hornsaw Forest, um, you've got the Gleaming Valley, which is right in that region, which is the home of the Howl Legionnaires, and then the Necromancer's city of Glivetotel, uh, atop the Mesa Caridae at the edge of the Hornsaw Forest, which I don't mind telling you is, in my estimation, the most horrific collection of necromancers that have ever been conceived for fantasy media um that was what i told my writers i wanted and that is what they delivered 
That's awesome. <laughs> I guess it goes right along with the horror aspect that Josh was talking about earlier. Yeah, uh, Glivodatel uh, really turned out to be just a a really terrifying spot, um, filled with all sorts of horrors and 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 uh, even there's a, a new. I'm going to go ahead and just start dropping spoilers left and right because I like talking to you guys. So there's a new um, monster, I guess, for lack of a better word, introduced in this book. Uh, I believe they're called the Morai. And uh give you an idea of what culture is like in Glivodotel. It's ruled by the necromancer elite. All the other living are basically a cash crop. They're there to be harvested and then turned into undead where they will actually be useful. So the living live under very oppressive rules. Um, until very recently, it was illegal to display any emotion, and now it is still illegal to display extreme emotion or to experience extreme emotion, which is where the Mirai come in. There's this uh, necromancer named Lucian Dane who came up with this process called sharding where he can pull parts of a person's soul out. Um, which deny, which denies them parts of their memory and, and experience. But then he can distill that and instill it in other undead to give them just enough spark to be able to perform tasks with reasoning, right? So, you know, <laughs> so, so like I take third grade out of you and I put it over in this zombie and now the zombie is a little bit better at mowing the lawn because he can, you know. <laughs> so. <laughs> So as this drives their economy, uh, they came up with these creatures called the Morai, and the Morai are uh, drawn from children, so usually between 6 and 12, um, undead, uh, who have, because of the, the, the cusp of you know, their, uh, where they're at in their age, when they, under, when they undergo this process of being made into undead and then sharded, they get uh, the ability to sense emotions. But they're all kind of these eyeless, voiceless creatures. So you'll see, you'll be walking down the street in Glibbetotel. You'll see a necromancer walking down the street with a, you know, 10-year-old corpse on a leash uh, that will suddenly just stop in the middle of the street and point and no, like noiselessly scream at someone because they're feeling too many emotions. Like that's just something you'll see on your way to like get your morning coffee. Um, if you're <laughs> living on tell, so <laughs> that sounds wonderful. <laughs> so naturally, we have to send the players in there at some point. Like you got to go in there and get a thing. <laughs> oh my goodness! But you know, when you want an ep epic story, you want to set up an epic, epic bad person for them to fight. You know. Well, yeah, I want to jump over to Josh real quick, give him a chance to tell us a little bit as well. Josh, I've, of course, looking at drive through RPG, we can see several titles that you've written a lot for Scion, uh, Werewolf, things like that, World of Darkness. Uh, tell us about, there's also stuff for Pugmire as well. So you've done some fantasy stuff too. And of course, Snowhaven. Um, but tell us about how you came to this project and, and your contributions to it. So I um, initially started uh, working on the Scarred Lands because Travis said in uh, one of the creators group on Facebook, hey, I need someone to make some ready-made characters for Gauntlet of Sparagos. And I was like, hey, I can make ready-made characters. That should be pretty easy. I know fifth edition. Um, so I sat down, I got the a copy of the Scarred Lands Player's Guide and I immediately fell in love with the setting. It was the first time uh, that I had actually looked at it in depth. I was aware of it peripherally, but never really dived into it. And then I read the book and was like, holy cow, this is metal. This is an amazing setting. Uh, I want to do more in it. Uh, so I made up the characters, put them on the Solarisian vault, and that um, went from there. Uh, and then I got hired by Travis to work on um, a project that is coming out soon where I wrote up Lokil, uh, which is a city um, a city slash library in Gelsbad. Um, that is a really cool location. Uh, one of the places that I think is really interesting because it's tied to um, this idea of law and what sort of a setting would be like if it was super lawful in, in the Scarred Lands, I think is really, really interesting because it 
it's oppressive, but not necessarily overly bad oppressive. It's just this weird sort of um, veneer of uh, super lawful. And what does that mean for the people when they're kind of like constrained underneath that sort of system? Um, but I think it's really, really cool. And that's going to be coming out um, fairly soon because we've been doing those chapters for that book in chunks. Um, and then Travis invited me to come work on Dead Man's Rust. And I specifically focused a lot on the Hornsaw Forest. So I got to write up the Dar Al Anat, which is uh, this group of witches and hags that uh, control the largest uh, serpent hold uh, in, um, I think in Gelsbad full stop, but specifically within the Hornsaw Forest, which it's this horrific tree, this pestilence filled tree that they uh, just uh, reside within and it spreads its tendrils throughout uh, the Hornsaw Forest. And it's the seat of most of the remains of Mormo, the tightness that was ripped to shreds and spread throughout, uh, at least throughout this region, but probably throughout the world at this point are bits and pieces of this horrifying hag titan. Um, so I think that's metal as heck. Um, and then I worked on the, um, the Eightfold Curse, which are a group of witch spiders, witch spiders being these giant sorceress uh, spiders that are organized enough to work with one another and are plotting to take over more and more of the Hornsaw Forest. Um, I think they're as cool as the Darala Knot, if not cooler. Uh, I really enjoyed working on both of them, as well as we all worked on different elven uh, tribes that uh, live within the Hornsaw Forest. Um, and I got to work on the Porcupine Clan, which also includes halflings. It's the one clan that has halfling members as well as elven members. So I, I'm excited about the work that I did on this project. I think it's super cool. Um, and I really liked delving into and spending a lot of time in the Hornsaw Forest. Okay, I know Nolan's got a question, but I have to jump in real quick because we've talked so much about the Hornsaw Forest and Hornsaw has played a big part in our version of our campaign of Vengeance of the Shunned. Um, I have to ask, are there rules for Hornsaws to be mounts? You're talking about the Hornsaw Unicorns, I, be I believe? Yeah, yes, I am. Uh, so Hornsaws don't make very good mounts. Um <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and this is a little uh, present, well, I guess it's not really a surprise for Nolan. I think you'd know this by now, but um, when later this week, uh, when um, Yugman's Guide to Gelspad Part 6 comes out, that will include the Hornsaw Sentinel uh, as a ranger subclass, uh, which gives rules for having a Hornsaw companion. Um, and even they, who have a hornsaw as an animal companion have a difficult time, it states in there, persuading the hornsaw to let them use it as a mount. <laughs> okay, so I have to tell this story real quick. Uh, this is this is uh, part of our experience with Vengeance of the Shunned. Um, the players come across a, a tribe of orcs, and I cannot remember which part it is. They come across a tribe of orcs, and during this initial contact, the tribe of orcs are fighting some hornsaws. Well, my wife was playing a dwarf by the name of Doxy, who is insane. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's clinically insane, but she immediately fell in love with horn saws, stood in front of one of the horn saws, refused to let the orcs kill it. And through ridiculous roles, like I was giving her stupid difficulties, managed to have a horn saw friend. <laughs> That's and awesome. she just continuously because her her character had this ridiculous magical item that constantly produced bacon. It's just, just it's, yeah, it's, it's it, silly. It. But she was constantly feeding the hornsaw bacon. So the hornsaw just followed her everywhere. I mean, if there's a way to get loyalty from a hornsaw, it would be to give it uh, dead flesh meat um, on a regular right. basis. <laughs> um, but yeah, and having said that, let me say for the record in front of the entire internet, um, if your game winds up more fun because somebody has a hornsaw mount, have a hornsaw mount. Um, don't let, Don't ever let any word that, I that has my credit attached to it, um, stop you from having a good time. Do what's fun. 
it was it was interesting that's for sure nolan i'm going to turn it over to you real quick yeah i i I think my question was just kind of you know this campaign you said was one through 10 the last one is one through 15 um i'm always curious about i guess from a writer standpoint how how you take your idea and then kind of balance it uh you know or maybe what's your favorite level to write at because for for the players you know is it tier one is it like anything after level five is your jam or you know you wish you had a chance to write for more high level stuff um i guess kind of what is that sweet spot that you feel is the best time where you kind of get to pull in all the cool monsters and get to ignore some of the boring ones uh or do you just create monsters to fit what you need for the story you want to take this one first josh Sure. I think uh, that's an excellent question and a hard one to answer because I usually try and write whatever is going to be interesting to me and then I fit it within the, the CR system or the level system. So sometimes I write something and then I realize I'm probably never going to use this because this is a CR 24 creature and I'm not running a lot of 20 level campaigns. Um, and then I will go from there and decide, okay, can I scale this down or scale it back a little bit and make it fit into an upper tier or a mid-level tier game? Um, and then sometimes I really enjoy focusing on that mid-level area, that like level seven to level 14 sort of challenge. That seems to be an area I enjoy creating for. So um, it all depends uh, on what the project is and what sort of needs of the project are. But I, I enjoy going a little bit higher level than starting usually as for me i like to tap dance around them all over the place um you mentioned boring monsters uh my my mission is to create uh situations for low level for tier one play where monsters that people maybe at first glance might look at and go oh this is going to be a snoozer and then just find ways to make them um you know horrifying or hilarious um, in a way that's unexpected, hopefully, and in a way that um, engages people and says, oh, okay, I can see a cool take on that. And that often winds up, you know, with designing variants. One of the things I did for DMs Guild that has done very well is um, it's called a, a small problem. And it's uh, it was actually the first session I ran for my all drow campaign, uh, the stream that I did extreme drowus. Um, and you, they fight these acid cobalts that have uh, like pet, like giant grub worms. But the acid kobolds are, um, you know, if you touch them, you take acid damage. And when they die, they explode and, and deal acid damage. Sort of like the Scorch Zombies in the opening of Vengeance of the Shunned, but dialed down a little bit because, you know, um, it wasn't meant to be quite as lethal. Um, and, and that was one of my favorite creatures to design because it's just this... Uh, silly little kobold, um, but you know you you got a clock real fast that you're going to need to take them out at a range. Otherwise, you're going to have a bad time. Um, <laughs> but the other thing I want to touch on uh, with Dead Man's Rust is the adventure is labeled as levels one to ten. Which what that means from a design perspective is is we give you a scenario you can start at number one at level one, and you're going to want to be around level. You're not going to want to walk into the last, uh, the, the big bad fight before level nine. It's a bad idea. You're going to have a bad time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, the, but the actual contents of this book uh, go far above and beyond that because it's the Hornsaw Forest. And uh, this is something that uh, adventurers would do well to remember and uh, GMs would do well to make clear to their players. Um, the Hornsaw Forest is not divvied up nicely by level breakdown you know you might be walking along and come across you know a couple of you know cr1 asathi that are sniffing around looking for you know remnants of mormo and then you turn a corner into a blood reaper you know or you, i mean it's not they're not broken into territories by level group so there's going to be things in this campaign uh, particularly if the if the GM uses like random encounter charts and things like that, that you're going to want to run from. Don't pick that fight; you're going to lose. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not designed with safeties on. It's not 
it's not built with bumpers. Um, and that also does provide, you know, as you get, you know, you wrap up the level 10, you fought the, the big bad evil guy. Now, what do you do? You go fight the Dar al You go fight the, these, the, the heads of these organizations, you know, um, you, you go and really try to make a change in Glivid Hotel. Um, you take on these things. Uh, there are two opportunities in this book to slay a dragon. So, <laughs> so I mean, there's there's things to uh, sate the bloodlust for the higher level uh, play as well. I, I think we saw that with uh, Avengers of the Shun real quickly that it was it was okay to live to fight another day pretty quick. I mean, there were just some things of. Yeah, we don't. We're, we're done with that. We've seen how this blood puddle works. So like, we'll come back to that thing maybe a little later, or you know. So it was it was nice, and and I agree. The scorched zombies were a nice touch of of tweaking that stuff because it does get old. Like, well, let's go to the cellar and kill the three rats. You know, in the old school days. So having scorched zombies or things that blow up is always a nice way to wake everybody up and make sure that don't forget you have six hit points. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I seem to remember Zach's uh, when when Zach, one of the players in the campaign, when when one of the scorch zombies blew up, he just kind of went, "Oh shit!" <laughs> so yeah, it was a nice touch. <laughs> that is the exact reaction those are designed to <laughs> to engender. So obviously, this is coming to Kickstarter tomorrow, uh, November twenty third, and and I. I as is customary, I'm assuming, with an Onyx Path Kickstarter, there's usually some pretty neat stretch goals. Is there anything that you guys can tell us about with some of the stretch goals? Uh, maybe give us, a, I don't know, a little foreshadowing of what we might see as this project moves along? Um, I don't know how much I can say without uh, Rich Thomas manifesting behind me and hitting me over the back of the head with something. Um, but, be, uh, <laughs> be, be, be vague, be vague. That's fine. <laughs> uh, but what I, can, what I can say is, is that any sort of the usual suspects among stretch goals, you can probably expect to see, um, you know, I would be, I would be greatly surprised if we introduced a campaign book and didn't offer some sort of, uh, play aid that a GM might unfold at the table uh, that I'm not specifically naming. So there is none in Rich's anger. Um, I would be uh, surprised if we don't uh, uh, back or t-shirt type stuff. I would like, I can tell you some things I'd like to see. I'd like to see an opportunity sure. present itself, make the book itself more awesome and make the experience of the players more awesome. Um, everything that uh, enhance what's already there this isn't the head-ons to the, the breadth of you know what josh worked on see that we've constructed a book that has a whole lot of meat in it um so really the stretch goal is going to be about add-ons and things that, that will surround that that material and give you more ways to introduce it and that's another thing i do want but as a designer i'm the most proud of the of named npcs that tells you roughly who they are and roughly what they want and where you can and, and find the, the story for higher levels. Uh, so, so there's different through a different low-keel adventure. Here's how you get from there. Thing Josh and I spoke about, I think you were working on the low-keel book, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, so, and that'll be out uh, end of this, unless something really change happens. Those, you know, you go into it as some way that such were really interesting. Uh, and again, part of the Wild West of not knowing whose toes you're stepping on. You know, it's I, I could probably very easily have one of my characters insult the air quote minister of the land and have no idea. And that's such a fun thing to do. And and having some of the, oh God, he's going to so regret putting his in his mouth later, you know, type situation, because I usually do that. So That's a great question. Um, one of the things that I do as a writer is particularly in a setting that has a history like this is I do my research. So I spent an outrageous amount of time reading the Hornsaw Forest of Blood book. I read that probably uh, about 10 or 12 times before I actually started writing. And that's a third edition uh, book that White Wolf produced um, during Hardlands. And I won't say that I memorized the book, but I definitely spent a time with it that I knew that I wasn't going to contradict anything that was written in that setting. And I think 
that's one of the things that I want people to know about this book is that yes, it's an adventure path and you can run the adventure, but you can use this as a toolbox setting book for all of these different locations just as easily. So if you're the type of storyteller uh, or GM, uh, whichever term you prefer, that likes to build your own story around these elements, you can absolutely do that with this book and you can create uh, your an entirely new adventure out of everything that's built here. So as a writer, my big thing is to do the research, make sure you know what you're talking about and then sit down, write it out and make it as interesting as possible. There's sometimes where I've talked to writers and they talk about some of the research that they do and how sometimes it can get a little heavy. Obviously, you mentioned that your your love for horror and such. Do you ever feel like sometimes when you're researching these things that the material is a little heavy and you just need to step away for a little bit? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, there's a, a section here where I was talking about the Dar al Anat, where I was writing hags. And hags are witches, and witches have a lot of cultural baggage in Euro-American culture. Um, some of those get into some bad tropes. Some of them have some bad origins. I specifically had a concern where I wanted to address uh, the reader and say, hey, here's a sidebar that talks about how to present hags in a way that isn't stereotypical, that instead looks at them from a different angle and tries to understand what witches are and why their connection to nature and nature magic makes sense for this setting. It doesn't pull away from the horror of them, but it contextualizes the horror so that when you dig into it and play it, you're not presenting a trope that's just a trope. You're instead presenting a fully fleshed out character that makes sense from A to Z. And this is actually something you do fairly regularly, Josh, including on your own show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a deconstructionist, so I try and uh, look at everything with a critical eye and as much as possible understand, hey, what are the tropes behind this? How do we look at them from a better angle? How do we save some of this material? Because I think, particularly with Werewolf, there's great material. It's just got some problematic elements, and sometimes you need to um, alter it to make it not offensive to people. One of the things that I've, I've mentioned this to Josh before, one of the things that I love about what you and Carrie do on Werewolf the Podcast is you you have no problem saying, look, this is, book was written in the early 90s. It's not okay now, but this is how it was written. And I like that you guys sometimes you'll break that down and say, here's how you can you know fix it for today. Thanks. It's one of the we try really hard to do. So I, I'm glad that people appreciate that. Absolutely. So let's get right back into Scarred Lanes here since we veered away just for a second with Werewolf because that is one of my favorite subjects, but still. Um, what, what are when, when somebody buys this book, especially if they don't have any introduction to Scarlet Sorry, I have a cat that's just all over me all of a sudden. Um, especially if they don't have any introduction to Scarred Lanes or they've never messed with it before, what, what is something that's going to hook them right away aside from the amazing cover work? Well, I think there's uh, a number of, of things, really. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Scarred Lands, but you're an avid D&D fan, uh, you'll recognize a lot of... You'll, you'll be walking into a, a new world uh, that has very different uh, sights and sounds and will challenge a lot of your preconceived notions, but you know how the dice are going to fall. You know the mechanics. You are being, I think it, it will offer a nice push and pull between that wonder that Nolan was talking about and that not knowing if you're, you know, spitting in the setting, you know, <laughs> uh, mega NPC's face or not. And, but marries that with the, with the knowledge of system that you would have if, if you're familiar with D&D. Um, to be able to say, oh, I just picked a fight I need to back out of. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, and you know, so, so you've got that sort of, it's a, it's safe discovery, I guess, for lack of a better word. Right. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with Dungeons and Dragons, Scarred Lands is a great setting, I think, to start off with, um, because a lot of work has been done in creating a, a place where, uh, the lore is 
steeped in it, but in such a way that you don't need to become a master of the lore to understand it. It's built into the surroundings. You don't need to know necessarily the details of what battle, um, you know, Mormo fell during. You don't even necessarily need to know much about Mormo, except that, you know, you might discover who that is when you find the first serpent hole you stumble across or just a piece of bloody meat that is radiating some sick energy, uh, you know, as you're traipsing through the horns off forest, you know, there, there are ways to um, sort of, it, it's, it's primed for discovery in the setting itself, in the environments you will adventure through in the people you will meet. Uh, it's, I think it does a very good job of uh, describing all this without without dropping expedition dump or exposition dumps every you know five pages. You know what I mean? You don't have to have some sagely wizard step out of the shadows and say, "Oh well, in you know twelve twenty two dr, you see." Um, you know? <laughs> so you just you just meet the setting, you know, by stepping into it, and uh, hopefully. Stepping out with all your limbs intact, Nolan. I, was, I think the big thing I've taken away from Scarred Lands, uh, just cracking the book and looking at it, was I feel like it has a mountain of magical items, a mountain of spells, a mountain of just extra stuff. And as a player, the the character customization and and having all that stuff, I was really blown away at the start, and very quickly learned that you need this stuff because the world is a little bit harder, uh, more difficult, more deadly. Um, but I, I have that as a big takeaway of, of the magical items really ramped up. Um, do we see any more of that, any more customization? I know that we probably never would have played with tattoos if it hadn't have been for the mega campaign, because I don't think any of us were used to it unless we, you know, some of us played in like 3.5, but do you, you guys do a good job of, or did a good job incorporating it last time. Do you bring some of that stuff back to of, you know, I get tired of having a plus one thing. I like looking up in the magical item book. Um, I don't know. Can you tell me about loot? I guess is the question. <laughs> That's all I care about. I'm a simple player. Yeah, no, I can absolutely tell you about loot. Uh, yes, there are new magic items. Um, there are new spells that you can learn um, through the course of the campaign. And we're also introducing um, new uh, playable species and new classes. So um, I don't mind spoiling for you that um, one of the classes, I'm really a fan of this class, so I'm going to be talking it up throughout this Kickstarter, that we have uh, introduced is the Prodigalist, um, which is a wizard that specializes in uh, the manipulation, summoning manipulation and improvement of their familiars. Um, so as you level up, you can wind up with kind of a small army of, <laughs> of these uh, creatures that you can tactically um, utilize and if necessary, sacrifice to achieve your magical ends. <laughs> um, awesome. So that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, uh, yeah, there's... Uh, new playable species one that i'm sure we'll be talking about a lot is the wretched um which are sort of a side effect of that sharding we were talking about before um with the the undead who start getting soul fragments if you over shard an undead they might turn into a wretched which are basically like uh sentient uh if they achieve full sentience and they achieve the ability to sort of pack up and kind of reproduce as well and so um Several of them left Glivodotel, either escaped or fought their way out or, or you know, managed to just sneak off. And uh, so now that's another playable species, uh, a sentient undead um, that offers some very classical uh, undead, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, skins, um, but in a very... Uh, <laughs> in a very unusual fashion. Um, if you squint, you can see what they're each based on. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a very cool and unique take on, on what those are. Um, so yeah, you've got playable options, you've got loot. 
uh, one of the things, uh, and Josh can maybe speak to this a little bit um, as well uh, as he, uh, he was part of the process, um, is as we rolled out the, I think there's 29 clans counting the uh, Broadreach Dwarves in the Horns Huff and the Broadreach Horizon. So as we rolled out these clans, each clan gets a write-up and each clan has story hooks. Um, and it was important to me that those story hooks felt unique and that those story hooks were, uh, but still also had cross references back into the, uh, into the core campaign, at least one among each, uh, clan will have a hook that'll lead you right back into the core story. Um, but that was fodder for all sorts of magic items to crop up and special potions and rewards and neat little things, because as you're doing things for this one clan who has this one specialization, of course, they're going to have a magic item that ties to their specialization, or they're going to have a spell they can teach you or a potion they can give you or some sort of MacGuffin-y reward for your, uh, for your quest. So you can really go around and just kind of collect quest rewards and, and really arm yourself magically that way. But uh, Josh, do you have anything to add to that? I don't know that I have anything particular to add to that other than I think Porcupine is the best clan, and that is selfish because I worked on them. Um, but I really enjoy the element of of the halflings in the Hornsaw Forest because at one point all the elves or most of the elves in the forest disappeared, and I'm not going to spoil all the reasons why, even though that's been spoiled ages ago, why the elves all disappeared, but they have returned, and now they're reintegrating their society uh, with these halflings that continued to live in the village and continued to be extant in their uh, culture. So there's lots of cultural elements that are built into each of the clans and there's its own whole game that you could play just on interacting with the different clans and trying to figure out their socio-political issues. So you can do so many different things with this book that it's, um, it is going to be an amazing toolkit. So that's uh, that's all I want to say about that. Is there any other books that you would need? Can you just pick up this book and play, or is there other things that you would need to play this setting? Uh, need you would probably only realis realistically need um, the uh, basic rules. Um, uh, you would do well to have a copy of Creature Collection, and you would do well to have a copy of the Skylands Players Guide. But like one of the things that I was uh, very sticklery on, and you probably picked this up looking through Vengeance of the Shunned a little bit too. Um, I get really bored really fast if everything you run into is a commoner. So <laughs> in our uh, expansive enough that it's going to need to be broken out over multiple updates appendix that comes out with this book, you'll find a lot of NPC stat blocks that are, that are uh, focused on what this NPC does. Um, all the elves, the clans are broken out into sort of larger families. So you have uh, plant clans, beast clans, hunter clans, uh, and rogue clans. And so each of those clan families has its own unique stat blocks for different strata of society. So you're really not going to know as a player what exactly it is you're running across for some time because um, you have to learn those you know, that, that's a situation where if you want to sit there and game it at the table and go, oh, that's a plant clan warrior, um, you have to learn a lot about the setting through experiencing it in order to do so, you know. Um, so that's a that's kind of a cool um, aspect that also makes it uh, less reliant on owning every Scarred Lands book in order to be able to, to um, you know, run it. Um, but yeah, it, definitely having a copy of the Scarred Lands Player's Guide uh, is a good idea just so that, that way you have it for reference during character creation. You can bring some of the uh, playable races from that in there. And having a copy of the Creature Collection, highly recommended. Um, I also personally think you should have a copy of Yugman's Guide to Gelsbed because everyone should have a copy of Yugman's Guide to Gelsbed. But uh, yeah, you, you if you wanted to go totally bare bones and run it just basic rules in, in this book, you could do so. You have the tools. Would it be helpful to have any of the Dungeons & Dragons books? I mean, I don't ever want to say it wouldn't be helpful, <laughs> but it's certainly not necessary. I'm a big fan of of creature swapping, um, 
too, like at my table. So, um, you know, if you're looking through something and you see, you know, oh, there's a creature in here that's in creature collection and I foolishly chose not to purchase creature collection, you can find something equivalent to swap in from the monster manual or from Xanathar's or from whatever, you know, whatever you want from uh, uh, Descent to Avernus. There's, there's plenty of stuff you can, you can hot swap characters and uh, whatever we don't provide. There's, I, I don't think we provide new stats. I don't think we're planning on reprinting any stats that are in creature collection. So where it references them, uh, if you didn't have it, you'd have to pull something like from the basic rules to swap it out, which you could do, but then you could then you're gonna lose some beautiful flavor. So, <laughs> so okay. like the diet version is the is the basic rules and Dead Man's Rust. The deluxe, like you know, all the trimmings, all you can eat buffet is you know throw in some creature collection, some Skylands Player's Guide, and Yevmans, which. If I'm not mistaken, all of those are available on Drive Through RPG. The last uh, chapter of Yugmans comes out Wednesday. Oh, good. So good. Um, and then we will be doing a collected edition at some point down the road here that will be POD that has a little bit more extra content in it, um, so on and so forth. But yeah, like. The, the the meat and potatoes of Yugmans will be all available by Wednesday. Everything else is available at Drive Through RPG. Or if you want to get uh, the traditional print versions, Studio Two, I believe, still has copies of um, all the Skylands books. Okay. So typically, I I know Onyx Path usually launches Kickstarters on Tuesdays, but this one is actually launching on Monday. Is there a reason why the change in days? Yeah, because Tuesday, 30 days from then would be Christmas Eve. Oh, good reason. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really it, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a fair reason. So all I want for Christmas is you to back Dead Man's Rust. That's what I want for Christmas. <laughs> good, good reason. I guess I do have uh what we've seen this kind of with the the month to month thing with Yugmans and then our tour across uh and then this one going to Kickstarter. Is there just a is there a favorite way of doing it? Is it nicer to have just kind of this bow on it and done and put it out there versus worrying about monthly releases or is it just as long as it's getting out there you don't care how it happens? Uh you want to feel that one first Josh because I feel like I have four different answers to that question. <laughs> sure. I um, I think there's merit to both uh, versions. There's uh, this cool thing of regularly getting content that when you've got something coming out every month, you can look forward to it and know, hey, my new thing that's going to give me some new tools is going to be coming out and I get to play with it. I think that's really cool. I think that's a really interesting way of developing a book. Um, I'm the type of person that I like to wait until those things are all collected at the end and then I can scoop it up and be like, ha ha, now I have everything. So I appreciate it for both angles. Um, but I like the fact that this is coming out as one big thing. Um, I think it's more appropriate for this adventure path, but I think it's cool to have Vigil Watch and Yugman's Guide come out monthly. I think that just provides a lot of opportunities for people to get engaged with the material and people to be uh, uh, brought into the scarred lands. Yeah, I would agree with that hundred percent. I think, <clears throat> I think tactic, the tactics are a, a thing, right? Cause the idea with Yugman's and visual watch is very much like we want to make sure we are keeping scarred lands front and center in people's minds. Um, and we were able to do that in a way that was, in, that was interesting and intriguing, right? If we didn't have, a cool approach. I think Nolan caught onto the not not that this is like a great revelation or anything, but you know, <laughs> uh, Nolan caught onto the fact that the um, the Yugman stuff uh, are all sort of grouped together thematically. If you have something like that, if you have something, you know, Vigil Watch is all grouped together geographically, right? This this one is in this place. This one is in this place. Real easy to demarket. It was a little bit more of a challenge with Yugmans, but proving proved not to be so bad once we started doing it. Like, oh, this stuff all goes together through the Blood Sea. This stuff all goes together through churches. This stuff all, you know, so um, you can tie them together thematically so that there is that hook that people can latch onto. 
as well. And then, but as a creative, I have like nine different answers to the question though. Because it's like, on one seeing the long growth that you're seeing from like, you know, first pop back and watch the previous metal their way up the chain and, and discovering it, which is cool. But in Yugman 6 coming out, on Wednesday that I have surrounding this Kickstarter launching on Monday. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a nervous wreck right now. My skin is horrible. Everything's you know it's a, it's it's just it's not great. <laughs> son of a bitch, that's the class I want to play. <laughs> and I, I, I do enjoy that. I think you can really go die because the world's gonna kill you anyway. So it's I I like having the subclasses. I'm not campaign yet until I get to see all they do because because everything else seems cool well that's what my, that's what multiplassing is for right but perspective i guess is when we create and the mechanics um with minor reflavoring and take a lot of the extreme stuff out of it right um you can there's one class so a druid subclass that we have that uses blood magic often their own blood um, and there's, and we talk in there in that sidebar about ways to, um, you know, instead represent it as, uh, you know, a draining of the life force or something along those lines, rather than the, than the open wounds that are described in it. Cause a, um, some people just don't like gore and B, some people might find reference to self-harm triggering, right? So if you don't want to use it as a literal self-harm that, the, that they're doing to draw this blood from themselves. You can say, oh, I'm sacrificing five hit points to Denev, and that's how this is working. Um, but the point being, though, is that you have that, when, when you're able to steer into that flavor, I think you can get away from like, okay, there's 500 fighter subclasses, but what makes this one different? Well, this is what makes this one different, is it feels, um, it feels metal all of its subclasses or all of its subclass features are designed around feeling around creating this particular environment which is the cover of an issue of heavy metal magazine (laughs) that's that's kind of the the thoughts if that makes sense absolutely yeah i I think anything that you do you can look at it and and go you can go as deep or as subtle as you want into a lot of them uh depending on your table depending on who you're playing with uh I think you can do that with any class that you can real quickly either creep people out or have them wondering, what are you playing like that? You know, and and I, I think that's the, hopefully you have that kind of faith at at your table that you can, you know, your boundaries and know your limits uh, and what people are willing to tolerate. But I like the things that push the buttons. And I also like the things that will make me creatively try and find a way to make it work where it's not hit you over the head with what I'm trying to do. So Oh, absolutely. And I, I can't stress enough um, with this and anything, you know, I I run session zeros for all my tables. I have um, been playing online with the crew from uh, Sins of Shelzar, which used to be Extreme Drowus, for three years now. And when we started the, Shin, the Sins of Shelzar campaign, we took a week off and had a session zero. Um, just, if, you know, touch base. Um, and that group, I don't know if you've listened to that, but that group is, are some miscreant ass murder hobos. And so, um, and things happen in that game that I'm sure would not be cool at every table, but we have discussed as, as a group, like, no, it's okay. If Tori decides she wants to castrate somebody with her bare hands, that's fine. We're, we're all right with that level of torture. Um, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and not everybody is and that's why we you know broadcast behind an adult filter <laughs> <You know? laughs> but the point being is uh session zeros i feel uh, permit you the space to do that exploration and if you accidentally discover something um it gives you the tools to back up and say oh i'm sorry i didn't uh, I didn't know that was an issue, and now we know, and we, it won't happen going forward. I accidentally discovered on a live stream someone have I can't remember the name of the specific condition, but it's like an actual visceral physiological response to the sound of chewing. 
um, like almost like a phobia level of it. And I found that out the hard way live on a stream that somebody had that. And we didn't discuss it, not because we didn't have a session zero, but because who thinks to bring that up during session zero? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, she does I, now, but. <laughs> I, I, I think I remember hearing that discussion, actually. Oh, like on the stream, probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, uh, and you know, what you do in that scenario is you say sorry and you make a note of it and you don't do it again. It's, it's pretty simple. Um, but yeah, I can, can't stress enough. The material in the Scarred Lands, as written, is adult um, and occasionally deals with some very, very troubling themes. And in case you feel for some reason you need it stated, you 100% have my permission as the developer. You, here's my permission slip. Omit what, what makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, just use the stuff that you think is fun and ignore the rest. Well, and I think, especially after Nolan and I were talking about um, Yugman's number four, and specifically the Paladin that you mentioned earlier, Travis, um, I had a discussion with my wife, who is an avid RPG player, and we just kind of talked about that type of character at our table. One of the things that she had said to me was, is, you know, obviously people have triggers and you need to be very aware of those triggers and, and a session zero is where you really can flesh those out. And she says um, to me, because she loves darker themes, she loves playing Vampire the Masquerade is her favorite game. And she says to me, you know, I'm okay with it as long as I can trust the people at the table to respect me and respect, you know, how I'm feeling in a situation. There are certain people she will never put herself in a situation where she's playing a game like Scarred Lands and someone that and we've, we've got a couple of friends that we love dearly, but if they were to play a, a paladin uh, of that ilk, she would absolutely not play because she just knows that they would take it too far. And I think session zeros are so important when you're playing in these realms. Absolutely. And if, and if nothing else, you know, let me uh, put on my imaginary person hat for a second. And let's say that you're somebody who gets a kick out of pushing people's buttons and whatnot. You know, um, if nothing else, sitting down for session zero and finding out that people aren't going to tolerate that. Now, you know that that's not a table you want to play at. So really it's a win-win for everybody involved. Agreed. <laughs> you know? Well, guys, that is, and we try to keep this to about an hour. Sometimes we go over, but that is about how much time we have dedicated for this. But before we go, I, I'd like to take a minute and, and give you guys a chance to give us the elevator pitch for this Kickstarter in particular. And then Josh and Travis, I'd like you both to just tell us some of the projects that you have coming up and, and where we can find your work and other things that you're involved in. So Josh, let's start with you. Tell us what you got coming up, what you're working on and where people can find out more about you. Yeah. Um, so my quick pitch for this Kickstarter is that it is a awesome adventure path that gives you a toolbox to use for any stories that you want to tell in the scarred lands. So you should pick it up just for your ability to tell awesome stories with it. Um, and you could even port all of this into its own setting. So um, pick it up. It's going to be awesome. You're going to enjoy it. Um, as far as finding my projects, uh, Werewolf the Podcast is at Werewolf the Podcast. You can check us out um, on pretty much any podcatcher we're out there. Um, and as far as projects I'm working on, I actually took kind of a big break where I wasn't working on anything actively. Um, but I can, most of my stuff can be found on highlevelgames.ca. Yes, we're Canadian. I'm sorry. Um, but you can definitely check out all the stuff that we have on our store there. Most of it brings you to drive through RPG where we have all of it listed. And I'd love to get you back on the show to talk about Snowhaven if we get a chance to. I would love that. I love Snowhaven. Travis, we're going to throw it over to you now. Awesome. Um, so my elevator pitch for Dead Man's Rest is, is, uh, I, I say this entirely based on the quality of the work that the wonderful team I assembled um, did. Uh, that's that's the beginning and the end of the credit I can take. But this is the single most face-melting, heart-wrenching, awesome, heavy metal, badass, fun, incredible campaign that has ever been assembled for the fifth edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. It's just a fact. I'll meet any other campaign in the alley and go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. It's going to melt your face off, pick it up. 
uh, it will be awesome. Even if you don't touch the main plot, there is years worth of material to use at the table in this book. Um, and we have uh, the most horrifying villains one could ever ask for in the Necromancers of Glivodotel. Um, come check it out. And as far as where you can find me, um, I stream at uh, twitch.tv forward slash plastic age plays uh, and often at the Onyx Path Twitch as well, which is twitch.tv forward slash the Onyx Path. Uh, I also do the programming coordination over there. I am at Travis Leg pretty much everywhere on the internet. Um, and uh, yeah, I also have a Patreon where I make um, little fun things that don't make their way into um, my freelance work, and I release them exclusively for my patrons. And then, you know, about once or twice a year, I collect all that and put it out publicly. But you can get first look at it. You can have impact on the design principles. Um, you get early access to my streams and stuff like that. Uh, all sorts of fun stuff for, for folks who help me keep the lights on over at Patreon. Dead Man's Rest for Scarlet's 5th edition will drop tomorrow, Monday, November 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Kickstarter. We cannot recommend enough that you check out Scarlet's and this mega campaign. Josh, Travis, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us. It's been a blast. Yeah, thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. Good conversation. And that is going to be our show for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. Next week, we will resume our look at Yugman's Guide to Gelspad as we look at part five. Nolan, do you have anything else before we go? I don't. Uh, thank you guys for being on. It's always nice to get to peek behind the curtain and see, uh, especially from a, a simple player, uh, knowing that loot is coming my way. Uh, you guys made my day. So I uh, thank you. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We will catch you next week. Bye. <laughs>